Hello and welcome to the Centralized Justice Broadcast. I'm Federico Ast, I am president at the Cooperative Cleros, and our guest today is Jason Potts. Jason is an economist, economic theorist who specializes in problems of economic growth and change. He works in areas of economic evolution, technological change, economics of institutions, economics of innovation, economics of cities, and economics of cultural and creative industries. His current research focuses on innovation in the commons and on global innovation policy. And he is also a leading researcher on the economics of blockchains and is currently the director of the Blockchain Innovation Hub housed at RMIT University. So, Jason, welcome to our podcast. I'm very happy to have you here. Thank you very much, Federico. I'm very, very pleased to be here as well. I mean, I'm super happy to, to get to speak to you because you do research in lots of topics that I find super interesting. I mean, uh, like institutional economics, evolutionary economics. So I, I want to understand a bit more about, I mean, how you got into, into I mean, this field. Some, so tell me a bit about your intellectual biography. How did you, I mean, what did you study? How did you get into, into this field? And, and how did you get to this point in your career? Yeah, so um, like I'm, uh, I've been working in universities all my life. And so I started back in the early 90s during my PhD in economics, but I, I came out of physics as well. My background was actually mm. in nuclear physics and with a sort of minor in evolutionary biology. And early 90s means before the internet, which means that in, before the internet in New Zealand, and one of the things that was very, very easy to do was to come up with ideas that you'd thought that no one else knew because you couldn't easily search and find and figure out that other people had already had that same idea. So basically, I thought I, 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 thought I invented evolutionary economics. Um, and it was that was a fantastic sort of um, sort of position to start with doing a PhD. And it sort of, as it turned out, you know, in the course of that, it turned out I didn't. Other people had had that idea long before me. But it set me on a path of approaching economics very much from an interdisciplinary perspective, where I was very, very comfortable just bringing ideas and models from other fields. Um, I sort of had enough math background that I sort of I understood the you know, the maths and economics, but also the stuff that economics wasn't using. And one of the key insights for me was that there was a lot of fundamental models and theoretical frameworks, particularly in biology, um, and particularly around in game theory, you know, in, in evolutionary biology, that just struck me as they obviously applied to economics. And so I sort of went down that path and sort of um, developed a lot of thinking around that. Also picked up a lot of work in complexity theory, um, sort of early on back in back when complexity theory in the in the 1990s um, was sort of led out of the Santa Fe Institute and people like Stu Kaufman and other sort of types of graph theoretic, network theoretic models. Um, they're completely common and obvious now, but then they were quite new and and somewhat radical ideas. So my big thing was to really take evolutionary population dynamic modeling, sort of selection theory. Combine that with network and graph theory and complexity theory and go, this is how we should understand technological change. The core idea was that economic systems are fundamentally not made of things, they're made of knowledge. And when economic systems grow, they don't grow and they just get bigger sort of physical sense. They grow by becoming more complex and they grow as knowledge evolves and expands. So right from the start, Um, I was very tuned to understand economic systems as evolving structures of complex knowledge, which meant that 
Um, I didn't really, I mean, and this has sort of been, this is this has been the thing, the, the theme throughout my career is that technologies evolve and institutions evolve, or institutions are technologies, they're social technologies. So, you know, in the just just to sort of loop immediately back to where we are, in situations like Clearos, you know, you're dealing with a court system, an institutional system, um, that's a technology. It's a technology made of particular rules about how you arbitrate and, 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 and construct disputes. Those disputes themselves are made of contracts, which are institutions. So it's basically, it's a tech, knowledge tech stack all the way down. And once you sort of see an economy as fundamentally made of not just you know physical technologies you know industrial technologies and then there's all this other stuff over there you know politics and culture and whatever but that's wrong the whole thing is a tech stack but some of those technologies are social and behavioral technologies some are physical technologies some are institutional technologies but economic dynamics this process of you know this thousand year long process of economic growth and change is all technological um Evolution. So that's the, the, the you know, so I've been sort of swimming in those waters and trying to trying to build general models of it, trying to find areas of application. And um, I started with a bunch of you know building theoretical models um, back in the early two thousands. Um, you know, essentially mathematical frameworks for this. Then I went into creative industries and cities and really tried to understand how to apply these these sort of abstract models of of evolving um, economies as evolving knowledge systems um, to particular areas. And I got obsessed with with creative industries. Um, And then um, we can sort of dig into that a bit. But then at some point, I started getting very interested in very, very early stage technologies. So I had on my list, this was about 10, more than 10 years ago, um, looking at 3D printing and um, sport, um, mountain bike, just sports, you know, sports technologies, mostly because these were private orders. I was interested in new technologies that were emerging that didn't really have intellectual property or were just mm. sort of communities of people. And, you know, and this weird thing that I've just been hearing about called, you know, crypto. And so that was just one of several case studies I was doing, but quickly got completely obsessed by that. And, you know, eight years mm. later, here we are. How do you, I mean, um, how, how do you study something from an evolutionary economics perspective? I mean, what's the methodology? I mean, tell us a bit about uh, how this industry study I mean, works um, in this field. Yeah. Yes, that's a good question because the methodologies, um, the, the methodologies for Um, sort of studying open system dynamics just by definition have to be different to methodologies where you're studying a closed form model. So this was one of the basic insights that comes that evolutionary economics is built upon is that you're by definition studying an open, complex, evolving system, which means that um, you have to use simulation technologies. You have to, or simulation models, you have to try and find ways to build models and then simulate the, 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 the forward pathways of them. Because what you're trying to do is to discover, um, you know, I don't know, um, you, to try and discover how, what this state space of the system actually is and what the distributions of that actually look like. So, um, sort of, so, You know, computer modeling by definition, numerical simulation has to be a big part of that of that story. Now, if that's the case, what that means is that the theory that you're using can't be um, purely axiomatic or you know just theory. It has to be based around um, rules 
that you're sort of saying that these are the generative rules I think are applying or driving the system. So you end up with a modeling framework that is far more about trying to build um, rule systems that can simulate possible futures. Now, that's a very, very different approach to um, the way in which a lot of, you know, economics is usually studied, which is actually far more closed form modeling approaches. So, so that's that's the high level answer to that. But I think one the, the broader answer is um, it has to be a multidisciplinary approach. Um, economic systems are made of you know, there's physical resources that have to be allocated. There's legal frameworks and mm. systems that are that are that are that are providing coordination. Um, there's governance and hierarchical systems and teams of people that are partially social, partially cultural, partially administrative. Um, then they're also just made of people. So you're dealing with behavior and neuroscience and so on. So I mean, this is why you know, I I sort of I think you know. I'll, I think economics is a particularly interesting science just simply because it's not actually a true science. It just combines a whole lot of other things all meet in that one place. It's part sociology, it's part legal studies, it's part neuroscience, it's part behavioral economics, it's part administrative science, it's part engineering, it's part, you know, all of this full mm-hmm. stack of things that comes together to study a phenomena, which is just an incredibly complex phenomena. And I think the only other field that has a sort of similar level of complexity is maybe brain science or neuroscience. Um, we were just dealing, but but that's complex for a different reason that we, you know, we're at the limits of what we can see into it. Whereas we can see you know, economic systems, we're all, we all know we're part of them. Um, but they're these incredibly complex evolving systems. And I think that's also why I've been just so fascinated with what's been happening in Web3 space and digital economies is that, you know, from a scientific perspective, this is incredible where, you know, I get to be here as an economist and observing in real time one of the great revolutions in economic history. Um, You know, these, we've had economies for thousands and thousands of years, but they've only really gone through these massive transformations relatively rarely. And one's happening right now. And, And we can study it from the inside. So, this 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 is my thesis that I think what we're seeing in in world economic history right now is this massive upgrade of the underlying um, administrative infrastructure that's going from industrial era um, modes that go back millennia um, mm. that's being upgraded into a digital system that some parts are being carried over but some parts are completely revolutionary new and again this is sort of why. You know, the work you're doing at Clearos is, is part of that process. You're, it's a massive step change upgrade in the underlying infrastructure of economies. And you know, of course, that's messy. Um, of course, it's experimental. It's driven by theory. It's driven, you know, um, but what myself and my team, we've got a, an incredible team at Blockchain Innovation Hub, including lawyer, you know, including um, some really fascinating um, tech lawyers, um, Marta Poblet, Aaron Lane, and, and and others in that space. But you know why we're excited about this is that we get to study in real time, get to observe you know um, this process of you know of of um, large scale global revolution in economic systems. I mean, who, who were I mean your intellectual influences? I mean to get I mean into this uh, place. I mean, who, who did you read? And who do you suggest? I mean, people should read in order to get acquainted with this, you know, with the science of evolutionary economics. 
Yeah. So, I mean, the the, the classic is Joseph Schumpeter. So um, Joseph Schumpeter was a 19th or an early 20th century economist, um, a contemporary of John Maynard Keynes, um, who, um, you know, basically modern economics split in two. And there was the Keynesian group that sort of said economies are machines, we can engineer our way through them. And then there was Schumpeter, who um, laid the groundwork for arguing that we should be understanding economic process as an evolutionary process. And what that meant was, and what he meant by that was that entrepreneurs are like um, mutations in a, in a system. They introduce novelty and then, then market systems are the selection mechanisms that sort of that select upon that novelty. And, and so to think of economic systems as evolving complex systems in that way. Um, so so Schumpeter is, is the obvious starting point. But one of the key influence, probably the the, the t- let me, let me just point to two. Um, there's, there's hundreds, but let me point to two. Um, one of them is um, Frederick Hayek. Um, and Hayek, um, a, you know, he's, he's a, um, is a very, very well-known economist. Um, but what Hayek did was he, he was the first person to really understand markets as computational systems and therefore economic systems as not allocation mechanisms that you sort of plan, but as computational systems where markets are effectively a series of institutional rules and those rules um, perform distributed computation um, on bids and asks and you know all the information all the distributed information in an economy and what they're computing is a series of prices which then guide behavior and that idea of markets as um, distributed computation was a genius level to radical insight in mid-century that we're still recovering from. We're still trying to, many people still haven't fully understood the implications of that. But what he basically said was economies are computers and market mechanisms are the way in which they work, which means they are distributed computers. Um, What are blockchains? Distributed computers. Blockchains are the realization of that that insight. So so Hayek, Hayek is, 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 is foundational um, as, as a way of understanding what are economies, how do they work. Um, the other person who has, has hugely influenced me is Eleanor Ostrom. And Eleanor Ostrom actually started as a, as a political scientist. But what she was studying was um, private governance, how groups of people come together and create order or create rule systems to govern their own their own um, economic activities or their, to, to coordinate their economic activities. And I mean, what's interesting about Ostrom and Hayek is that both of them were studying particular mechanisms. Hayek was studying market mechanisms. Ostrom was studying commons mechanisms. Both of them are governance mechanisms. What are governance mechanisms? They're just systems that govern humans that are made of rules, where all of the humans in the system have to agree upon the rules. Um, what is evolutionary economics? The story of how those rules evolve and change. So it's all part of the same sort of way of doing economics by understanding it as complex, evolving rule systems. Um, I mean, what was interesting about Ostrom was her methodology. She just said, um, private governance, this in theory, this shouldn't work, but in practice, it seems to work. I wonder what's going on. So she and her team of, of you know, postdocs and PhD students just spent decades just studying and recording, you know, inductively analyzing thousands and thousands of commonses 
to try and figure out why some of them worked and some of them didn't. And with that, she was able to surface um, sets of rule systems that seem to work. She said, there it is. These seem to be the rule systems that are governing, that, that seem to work in private order governance. Um, you know, an incredible bit of modern social science because that was, you know, that information had been there for thousands of years. No one had figured it out. Um, she surfaced it. And what it meant was that now we can start to understand how you can design private order governance systems. Um, you combine that with Hayek's work, now an understanding of why markets work as distributed governance systems and coordination systems. Um, if we're looking for other names, I would throw in Thomas Schelling, I think is absolutely fascinating. Um, one that probably no one here has heard of is George Richardson, an Oxford economist from the 1960s, um, looking at information theory. Um, um, I'm a huge fan of Herbert Simon from the 1950s on org theory. Um, so there's lots of sort of classic e economists back in the sort of early, mid part of the 20th century that did a lot of groundbreaking work, but all of their work was pointing in the same direction. Economies as complex evolving institutional rule systems um, that, that, that that's the way we understand what an economy is and how they grow and evolve. Um, and, you know, in this, in the crypto space and blockchain space, just all of that is the continuation of that trend. You know, this is fascinating because I mean, if you ask me like, what's the most I mean, the intellectual that had most influence in you, it's Hayek. And in particular, it's this use of knowledge in society text, you know, where he explains about market as computation. And, um, and in the first uh, episode of this season of the podcast, I interviewed Mark Miller, who is a computer scientist, the founder of Agoric. And in the 1970s, They were thinking of computing markets from the perspective of, of Hayek, you know, a paper. Uh, I mean, and the, how, you know, the pricing mechanism will work to assign, you know, computing resources to where it's needed. I mean, and uh, it's fascinating how different people are coming to the same type of conclusions. In the case of Mark Miller, from the point of view of computer science, I mean, your case is revolutionary, you know, Schumpeter, Hayek. I know. Um, react to that, baby. <laughs> yeah, look, um, I know, Mark. Um, I'm just to, just to be clear. I'm also involved in Agoric. Um, and, oh, great! And, you know that. <laughs> yeah, so I'm one of their one of their advisors. Um, but Mark is a spectacular genius. He's he's one of one of the great treasures of our modern era um, that I wish more people knew about. But the um, So the Agoric papers that Mark wrote with some of his colleagues, um, Eric K. Drexler, and um, I think Bill Tuller was involved in some of them later yeah. on. But they are, that is a classic case of work that is decades before its time. Um, so the, the Agoric papers were basically the opposite of Hayek, where Hayek was trying to understand how market systems are like computers. What the agoric paper system, what the agoric systems papers are doing, and um, if you just if you just Google them, agoric papers, um, Mark Miller, you, you'll find them. They're they're incredible pieces of timeless of timeless scholarship and thinking. But what what the agoric papers do is argue in the opposite direction: how computer systems can be like markets, and it's the same sort of insight um, with when. With Mark and, and, and Bill Tello and a few others, we've been sort of thinking of these as um, nano economics. But the, the core idea was that 
uh, and this was this was Mark's genius, was just just to think of computer security uh, that, that a computer is fundamentally a centralized system with a CPU in the center, um, sending calls and, and requests to different sort of modules around it, and that's the same mental model of a centrally planned economy where you have a central planner um, sending messages to to various agents in the economy do this, do that, and do that, and whatever. Now, central planning doesn't work for the reasons that Hayek pointed out was um, just knowledge problem. Um, there's no way that that the central unit can have all of the information because some of it is tacit, some of it is local. Um, there's just lots of reasons that, that that is an impossible computation to make. So central planning ends up working with very, very flawed information sets. That's why it always fails at scale. Works on a very small scale, level of a family or a small farm. But once you get up to millions of agents, it's just it by definition will fail because it cannot process the information. Mark's insight, um, which was the basis for forming Agoric along with um, Dean Tribble, was to understand that from a security perspective and see that the standard sort of software architectures um, have this notion of a central bit of processing in the middle and then a whole lot of clients around the edges that it sends messages to. Um, the now, those machines can process the information fast, but because you've got one thing doing all of the um, access controls for everything else, that is a security nightmare. There's one thing is that is dealing with the security and access for everything. So what, what Mark's and, and, and Dean's insight was, was that if you made computer architectures more like markets, where they're basically each module or each subroutine is contracting is 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 asked is contracting with specific other ones for access to little packets of information to send around. If you make software architectures fully distributed, um, they are far more robustly secure and natively secure. And that sort of insight of how you get markets. So, so then, okay. So how does how does a how does this module bid for resources? Answer it uses prices. So what their insight was, was that, you know, both computer architectures and economic systems are both systems for processing distributed information, for performing computations, and that distributed systems have, distributed parallel system systems have um, a lot more robustness um, and security in the case of computer architectures or adaptiveness and ability to evolve um, in the case of economic architectures um, when they're designed as market-like distributed objects. Now, that, that insight, that, that notion that um, you know, economies are computers and computers are market economies, um, you put that together, what have you got? A blockchain. Well, I mean, I had no idea that you you were close to, to Mark. I mean, and I'm huge fan and i mean what he did in the 70s was i mean groundbreaking mm. i mean oh, as always you know if you're way ahead of your time it's hard for people to understand what you're talking about but you know all of the ideas that he was working on and xanadu and all that so i mean yeah. how did you get into into blockchain since you since you mentioned it what was your your trip in the rabbit hole yeah, so um, I was doing research on very, very early stage technologies, and I wasn't interested so much in blockchain as a technology, um, you know, the, the, the underlying, you know, how does this thing work? What I was interested in was that where it's, it was the almost the sociology of it, that it seemed to come from nowhere. It didn't, you know, um, so I, my area is evolutionary economics, which really means innovation economics. I study new technologies, where they come from, how they grow and change. And one of the sort of basic patterns that you see over and over again is that new technologies 
are invented in labs or they're patented and they come from you know universities or corporations or whatever and then those companies those companies um you know sort of build the technology and and, and try and develop it and seek finance for it and you know there's a there's a very you know lots of different technologies all have the same life cycle except blockchain crypto it just did not fit any of the models so first of all no patents secondly it just appeared on this weird sort of newsnet forum in the middle of the night, you know, anonymously. Um, thirdly, it didn't come from universities. It didn't come from, you know, corporate research lab. It didn't come from any of the usual places. Um, and this, the, I mean, what it did was it came from the comments. And this idea of um, radical new technologies institutional technologies. It wasn't even an industrial technology. It was an institutional technology emerging in this weird institutional space. It emerged from the commons and it grew in the commons and it has stayed mostly in the commons. Um, that was interesting to me because that's 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 not the path that we normally see. Normally it's entrepreneurial discovery, born in a firm, grows in markets, protected by governments. That That sort of industrial innovation framework is most technologies that that we're all familiar with not this one um so i was just i was just fast just fascinated from a scientific perspective why is it different what's going on there and the the more i sort of looked into i mean and that then sort of we went down the rabbit hole on that and it wasn't just me it was myself and i had some fantastic phd students some of whom are now postdocs working with me now um trent mcdonald and darcy allen um, they were the ones. They were the ones that really sort of led me into it and said, "Look, you have to come and look at this. This is this is fascinating." Um, very soon, then started going to conferences. Met people like Primavera di Filippi, um, who sort of sort of gave me a sense that you could actually treat this as an academic field. So this was back in twenty late twenty fourteen, twenty fifteen or so. Started looking into it, and um, you know, even now. It's there's not you know it's a bit academically weird to look at it, but back then it was super weird. Um, it was just like why would you touch something that is so obviously criminal and insane, and and you know this will this will be the end of your academic career if you go into that field. But um, I just thought it was just a fascinating anomaly, just something that I'd never seen before, that so clearly. Um, was aligned with everything I knew about, you know, this is the Hayekian sort of story of, you know, markets and economies as computational devices. Here it was literally a computational distributed device. Um, so it just, it had this, I had this sort of intuition that this was something big and something worth sort of really digging into. And um, what, what do you think is, I mean, what, what's the meaning of this um What's the reason that it comes from nowhere? I mean, why is this different? Um, uh, what what is the message hidden yeah. in behind? Yeah. Look, I, I've it's a, I've thought about that a lot. Um, what I I think a lot of technologies can potent, do start like this. Like, so the, I've I've done a lot of work on innovation commons. I've got a book on this published in 2019. If you want to check that out, um, but what what the sort of basic insight here is is that a lot of new technologies that come along and you know if we think of software and soft you know coordination software to create digital scarcities as a new technology um one of the key challenges is it's very very difficult to figure out the economic value of something fundamentally novel 
because you have to, and for Hayekian reasons, to, to understand the economic opportunity of a new technology. Um, it's not enough just to sort of look at it and go, well, I, I, I foresee a future when lots of people will buy this thing or sell it or whatever. Um, or just, you know, what you have to do is you have to figure out all of the, um, you have to assemble a huge amount of information about the costs in building and making it, um, sources of supply, um, potential barriers, regulatory barriers and legislative barriers um, to, to, to that, um, potential sources of markets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. A whole lot of information. None of that information exists um, in one head, usually, but the information might exist you know, in the world, but it's it's different people will have it because they've done experiments, they've been playing with it. It's, oh, yeah, we tried that and it does this. When you do that, it blows up. Or, yeah, we tried to find some parts for that and you can get it from there and whatever. But that fundamental information problem of how to get all of the information relevant to figure out is this an opportunity? Is this something that I can make profit on? Um, you know, profit in the sense of just creates more value than it uses, right? Not a, it's a, I use it in an ideologically neutral sense. Um, it's an information problem. And it's an information problem that needs to be solved by assembling a whole lot of people that have parts or shards of that information where everyone has bits of information, but they don't know the value of what they're holding. They might be crucial. It might be trivial. Um, you need to get them together in a conditions of extreme uncertainty um, to try and figure this out. Now, a firm is good, you know, a business firm is good when you've kind of got a lot of the information figured out already. Um, you know, here's how we're going to do it. Yeah, yeah, we just need to assemble the stuff and write the contracts. Um, a commons is a context when people will come together and just share that information. They don't really know what they've got, but they want to see what everyone else is holding. So as I said right at the start, I was studying blockchain and, and 3D printing, but I was also studying the invention of new sports. And the invention of new sports, you know, sort of think mountain biking in the 1970s or windsurfing in the 1980s or kiteboarding in the you know, early 2000s and so on, is usually a bunch of enthusiasts comes together and go, did you know if you strap this onto this and hold it like this and go there, you can do that. And if you do this trick, it really hurts. But if you do it like this, it's amazing. Mm. Um, so it's mutual sharing of information about stuff with other people where you're not quite sure what you're going to do yet. Now, at some point, you'll start a business. Or at some point, people go, ah, we should make a business manufacturing these things or selling gear for this or whatever. Um, then you need to figure out, okay, what are the rules? How do we govern this? How do we make this into an actual sport other than just a bunch of people you know, moving very, very quickly through water? Um, so there's a whole lot of sort of adding layers of technology and adding layers of institutions and and just, you know, and eventually it emerges and bang, we have a new thing. But mm. the starting point of every new technology that goes into the economic system almost always starts in the commons. Um, just simply because that's the only place where you can get a group of people that come together to pool distributed information under extreme uncertainty to try and discover value. So that's the answer to the question. Why did crypto, why, why did Bitcoin I mean, start in the commons? Because, because all technologies start there, um, especially ones that have that are radically new. Um, 
We just don't tend to sort of, you know, from a historical perspective, you don't tend to see that because it doesn't leave a record. Um, it doesn't have a, you know, the registry of the company. Or you know, there's no intellectual property in that story. There's no firms in that story. There's no government grants in that story. There's no, it's just a bunch of people coming together and sharing information that they're obsessed about um, to create things. So, yeah, blockchain more than anything illustrates that process. That's interesting. And so, uh, and based, I don't know, now that you're telling me this, I don't know if you can use previous models of technology adoption and, di and diffusion. I mean, but I, my next question was going to be, you know, when this is becoming like massive, I mean, based on previous, you know, experiences of innovation. Yeah, so that whole common story is very much about the very, very early stages. I think a lot of our models of um, technology adoption diffusion are actually correct. They're just correct for the later stages of it once it gets going and taking off. Um, so, I mean, this is this is my current set of, this is the, the work I'm currently doing um, about to sort of write a book or two about this topic. But it's just basically this question of what does it look like with a fundamental global transition from industrial economies to digital economies? What does the nature of that transition look like? And what I think the argument is, is it's not going to look like the sort of technological trajectories we've seen around adoption diffusion curves of, you know, phones and, you know, self-driving cars and washing machines and electricity and so on. You have these logistic diffusion curves that just go up and, and, and because what we're dealing with here is institutional technologies, um, digital monies, digital contracts, digital court systems, digit, you know, this, this full sort of stack of digital institutional coordination technologies. And the thing about institutional technologies, unlike industrial technologies, is industrial technologies, you can adopt one by one. I'll use get a phone and you'll get one and someone else will and someone else will and so on. So um, with institutional technologies, there are extremely powerful network effects, but they're also extremely high, you have to get to a certain level that they have to sort of work and, you know, um, we all have to agree to adopt the new thing. So you've got this huge coordination problem in the, in the adoption curve, which means that something either has to push them over it. Um, now, if, you know, for instance, if you have to have an external forcing function, sort of, so COVID was a famous one that it sort of forced everyone to suddenly start using Zoom, um, just overnight we we all had to sort of suddenly adopt this new technology because um so you know we tend to have nation states are very good at forcing that you know this will be the money we will use this will be the court systems we will use etc cetera, etc cetera. um we're now looking at how do we go through a period of rapid adoption of institutional technologies where it is not being led by nation states um they're mostly resisting it but instead being led by emergent communities of use and practice um, that are at global scale and so on. So, I mean, that's that's I think where we are at the moment. And what this looks like is the the you know, the analog of nation states here are high level communities of use. So it might be gamers or it might be you know, whatever that that is scattered around the world, but all have a common use case for this new thing and can adopt it um, in that order. So, I think you know that's that's where we are at the moment in terms of what the dynamic transitions of the world for the next few decades will look like. And you know, just to, to recap that, I think it doesn't look like industrial dynamics. It's not going to be the 1920s or 50s where we suddenly got aircraft or radio or 
televisions and computers and so on, that sort of trajectory. Um, it's going to be a bit, for a start, it's global. Um, this isn't sort of country by country. This is this is happening at the global level. Um, secondly, it's likely to be um, unsmooth. It'll be nothing, 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 suddenly, bang, mm. and then through. And that 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 those trigger points could be difficult to predict because they will be conditional upon an accumulation of 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 um, preparation that, that, that suddenly something will trigger the switch and then everyone switches. So. Um, this will feel a lot more abrupt and, and, and chaotic than it actually is. But I think the dynamics of institutional technology adoption is different from the dynamics of industrial technology adoption um, in ways that none of us have ever experienced before. Like, you know, this, this was something that you know, humanity has experienced in the past before. Um, but even then, you know, so go back to the Industrial Revolution or you know, periods before that. But even then, that was a multi-decade process. I think it's going to be much faster this time. I find very interesting the examples you, you are bringing. You know, um, these new sports and these um, new gamer communities on the Internet. And also, lots of the people I see working on blockchain and entrepreneurs, I mean, and myself included, we, we come from places where institutions, I mean, there was like a void of institutions. I mean, I'm from Argentina and I... I mean, I got into blockchain because of um, I could see very clearly what was not working with institutions, and I could see that also as a practical problem against capital controls, and I mean all of these. And I kind of um, I started Claros as some way to answer, you know, to this lack of institutional certainty of you know whatever. Mm. I don't know what do you think of that. <laughs> No, no, I, I, this is this is something that is very close to my heart because what you are is an institutional entrepreneur, right? and so we have normally entrepreneurship in industrial economy was entrepreneurship in building a new product, you know, a new widget, a new you know type of um, you know thing that you can make and buy and sell. Whereas what we're seeing in institutional entrepreneurship or innovation was very, very rare. Um, it was done through the legislative process. It was slow. Um, it, you know, institutions hardly changed at all because all of the dynamics in the economy was in the industrial part of it that were rapidly evolving and changing. What we've got now is the opposite of that, that we're starting to see this period of rapid institutional innovation because we can, because the, the costs of institutional innovation have fallen so low. Um, if institutions are just made of software, um, it's easy for me to fork it, download it, change it, modify it. I can, I can innovate in institutions far more cheaply. Um, so, you know, economics, demand curves slope downwards when things fall in price, we consume more of them. Um, when institutional innovation falls in price, we get more institutional innovation. Now, the, the limits of it are adoption. That was what I was talking about before, that easy to come up with new institutions, hard to get people to use them. Um, but I, mean, I think what we're seeing is this sort of golden age of innovation in institutions in the same way that much of the 20th century was a golden age for innovation in industrial technologies. Um, so, you know, Kleros is part of that movement, but you know, lots of, you know, a lot of the things that we're seeing in DeFi and stablecoins and, you know, um, uh, you know, that whole space, huge NFTs, huge institutional innov innovation. Um, 
you know, everything we know about innovation is probably also true here. Most of it will fail. Some of it will become huge. Impossible to know which ones um, in advance of just running the program and seeing. So there's, you know, we can't we can't axiomatically figure this out in advance because this one is clearly superior. We just have, you know, these things are so complex. The only way to figure out what's going to work is just to try it and see. Um, which means that, you know, that's the move fast, try things out, iterate, et cetera, et cetera. So lots of lots of lessons from innovation still still apply here. But um, you know, it's to me it's very clear what's going on. This is innovation in an entirely new realm of the economy. That's that's great, Jason. I mean, I could I mean stay a lot time speaking with you, but I mean, just one last question, and we will certainly do maybe a, a, another episode uh, with all of the questions I didn't get to ask. But you know, what books, movies, or documentaries, or whatever can you recommend that to people who want to get into this world <laughs> of evolutionary economics, blockchains, and everything that you are researching? Yeah, like, um, so evolutionary economics is a is a big deep field. It actually goes back over a hundred years. So I, I said sort of Joseph Schumpeter, and there's also Torsten Veblen and so on. So there's there's a lot of historical stuff in the in the in the distance. Um, the modern sort of great institutional economists are Dick Nelson and Sidney Winter. Um, hopefully both of them will win the Nobel Prize soon for the work they've done. Um, they wrote a classic book in 1982, which is 40 years ago, um, called the evolution, um, the, remember it, evolutionary theory of economic change. Um, that's a good place to start if you want a book, but it's, um, but the, a lot of the, um, there's a journal called the Journal of Evolutionary Economics is a good place to look just to get a sense of the type of work that's going on there. Um, it's, it's a, it's a very, very broad area now that's, that's, that sort of cuts across things. Um, I would, I would suggest, um, you know, I'll, I'll plug my own book, um, Innovate, the Innovation Commons, um, that came out a few years ago, um, Oxford University Press, as a sort of one of the ways of introducing some of the new things in the space. But, um, you know, as always, with all, all things, Wikipedia is a great place to start. Or now chat GPT, you know, it's the best place to start, you know, can, what, what can you recommend to me, you know? <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm just going to, to make one more recommendation. There is this very good book by Carlota Perez about technological revolutions oh, yes. and financial capital. Yeah. It's yeah. a great Schumpeterian yeah. analysis of economic cycles yeah. and how technology changed. So, Jason, yeah. thank you a lot for, for coming. Do you have any final words for, for the audience? No, look, thank you very much for inviting me on. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. And my main recommendation is to go back and read the Agoric papers, Mark Miller's um, work from the late 80s. It's 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 um, your best chance to see what an actual time traveler looks like and how they write. I also support that. So thank you very much, uh, Jason. And this was a new episode of the Centralized Justice Broadcast. I am Federico Ast and see you in the next episode.